This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... When Players Idiot Plot. Trumped Republicans. Gangs of 30s LA. And the Blood of Atlantis. April, the Secret Masters at Atlas Games kickstarted a new edition of Unknown Armies. It's the legendary occult RPG where horribly broken people conspire to fix the world. Now, the books are at press and digital rewards are starting to land with Kickstarter backers. But not everyone was conscious in April for this dramatic shift in the invisible clergy. Maybe you were asleep, unaware of the occult underground. Maybe you were just doing something else in April. It matters not! You can still pre-order everything offered and unlocked during the Kickstarter and get it all as soon as it's available. From the deluxe edition, whose three volumes are wrapped with a slipcase that unfolds into a GM screen... To PDF, EPUB, and Moby digital editions, not to mention three all-new soundtrack cycles composed especially for this project. Pre-order at atlas-games.com backslash UA3 pre-order. Or follow the link in the show notes. It's good to be awake. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the shag-carpeted confines of the Gaming Hut. And here in the Gaming Hut, we tackle that perennial problem in other lesser forms of narrative, the (laughs) idiot plot. And one would imagine that at a GM powered table with alert and active players, the sort that all of our listeners have, there would not be idiot plots. Robin, do you believe that it is a necessary factor of the game? That well, let's back up a titch, first of all, all right. and define what idiot plotting is for, for those just joining us. Just joining us. So in uh, a moment of idiot plotting in a piece of passively consumed entertainment, like a novel or a, a movie or a TV episode, is when you suddenly lose sympathy for the character you're supposed to sympathize with because they make a decision that is not only uh, foolish, because, of course, many of the great works of literature are are about objectively bad decisions, like King Lear makes at the beginning of of King Lear, but uh, sort of come out of left field and are just really foolish and make you either doubt the plausibility of what's going on, or you don't reject it as a piece of fiction, but you can see that uh, you no longer like that character for doing that thing, or something just seems to come out of nowhere that doesn't fit some sort of randomly uh, jammed in uh, scene. I think so, specifically an idiot plot is something where you make an idiotic decision, the character does rather, only so that the plot can move forward, right? That There may be, I mean, for example, King Lear has his interior life to explain why he does something idiotic. Romeo and Juliet are teenage morons, and that's why they do idiotic things. But if someone does an idiotic thing only so that you can set up the next act, and especially if they've not been depicted as idiotic in any other fashion, that is an idiot plot, the classical formation of it, right? Yes. Um, And we're taking, I'm taking that definition a step uh, sideways because in role-playing, what the uh, idiotic decision often does, it doesn't forward the plot, but it does quite the opposite. It sends it off on a weird sidetrack where you wonder why this is happening. Because the kind of idiot plot where is, why would you go into that dungeon? You know it's full of dragons and monsters. The idiot decision is, well, because we know that the GM made up the story and that's where the story is, and so we're going to justify it to ourselves, even though maybe... In a, in a fully immersionist world, our characters would go and tug on the cape of the 10th level paladin in town and say, you'd better go clear out that cavern, and then just follow him along picking up uh, dropped aquamarines or something. Right. And I, I think even what we're looking here are sort of the classic cases where the one player in the group decides to do something to test the boundaries of the narrative and deliberately chooses to do something Foolish that subverts what's going on. The old I stab the king bit. The I stab the king bit. I start a meaningless fight in the tavern. And the extent to which that is a problem is uh, 
because we're not arguing, I don't, uh, certainly I'm not arguing that there is a track that these stories should stay on and the, uh, a sudden decision by one of the players shouldn't be able to move things off in another direction, but that other direction must feel as satisfying to the group as a whole and even to that player at the end as it would if you had made a more expected decision. So uh, if you your character goes up and stabs the king and then the rest of the scenario has to be, okay, well, I guess the king imprisons you and the rest of your group and schedules you for execution, so I guess you're not going to be able to go and save the kingdom from the... Uh, that at the end of that session, either the GM throws narrative plausibility out the window and the king just goes, ho, 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 I, I was hoping for a good stabbing. You, that's, uh, that's wonderful. Now let's continue on with the mission. Or then the obvious things happen and that uh, the rest of the players are unsatisfied and perhaps you are unsatisfied at the end because you probably wanted to get away with stabbing the king and uh, be sort of tooling around in a grand theft auto fashion in a universe where you just go around stabbing and poking and running over things. As opposed to being drawn and quartered and having your head put on a pike. Right. So the question uh, before us today is to what extent should the rules be configured in order to prevent the players from going down plot avenues that would be ruled out as unsatisfying in any other narrative? So should there be uh, a mechanism in the game, or that should the rules be designed in some way to either forestall king stabbing, like gratuitous king stabbing, of course, or adjust against gratuitous king stabbing? Well, I think that we're sort of moving into a, a, a bunch of different areas. It's as though it were a gaming hut. Um, <laughs> yes. And so <laughs> there's a number of doors. And, and so, oh, are they all alike? That's the only ones I like if, is if they're all alike. I, I think, first of all, I believe that a rule system should incentivize the behavior that it wants to see, that the game should be about. So if the game should be about Grand Theft Auto-style stabbing of kings and running away from castle yeomen and whatnot and doing all of your various adventures, that way, if you're playing sort of Assassin's Creed, the role-playing game, then... Sure, sure, incentivize that. You know, By that, definition, king stabbing is never gratuitous in an Assassin's Creed inspired game. Right. So, so the, the, the rules would then incentivize that kind of behavior and you'd get extra points for stabbing the king, but you'd know going into it that, yeah, there's, you know, tower yeomen that are going to chase you around with spontoons. And so you're going to be in trouble. Right. Similarly, if the game is about going to the damn dungeon already and clearing it out, then the rules should incentivize that, not king stabbing. And so stabbing a king should give you no experience because you haven't learned anything about being a cleric or a paladin or anything. All you've done is waste everyone's valuable time and let that dungeon fester. So what I, I prefer a carrot that is well communicated to a stick that is well communicated, I guess, as a designer and to an extent as a player, although in, in play as the GM. So Right, because just saying, well, there's you don't get any experience points for stabbing the king. Well, the king's already been stabbed. Mm -hmm. The uh, narrative has already gone in a way that has irked everyone else at the, at the table. But if the rules are set up such a wise that the, the stabber knows that they are performing a nugatory act, that might stay their, uh, homis their regicidal hand. Right. And so I guess what we're looking for then are mechanisms that pose to the uh, errant king-stabbing player the question why do you why do you want to do that really or yeah i guess i guess what we're looking for are rules that say really yeah cuz that's what the gm does yes in in my old call of cthulhu games my they would say can i dive underneath the moving suv and i would say well you can try which was sort of my way of saying no but <laughs> yes. you know <laughs> and and that's the question uh, how how effectively are you signposting your really because right. there's a, a second category that you want to distinguish the gratuitous king stabber from just the person who's not accurately picturing what the consequences will be. Right. Right. If you're jumping off the roof in order to be grabbed by the teeming mob below who will break your fall, but the GM just thinks you're going to plummet to your death, uh, you as a player need to explain what you're trying to do in that direction. Or if a player is like, oh, well, I just climb across the uh, flaming lava uh, with this uh, this rope I have, and the GM says, well, remember, it's, you know, 
3,000 degrees centigrade, you, you're even if you don't touch the lava, you're going to roast and immediately die. The player may not be thinking that. So you right. want to yeah. separate the deliberately subversive act from the... Uh, merely misinformed act. Merely misinformed act. And, and that is something that is generally up to the GM, because they're the interface between the players and the world. Even if the scenario says the lava is 3,000 degrees, that may not tell the player, certainly, because they're not reading the scenario, and maybe not even the GM, oh, remember, they'll spit roast themselves if they try and cross it on a on a wire. Um, so it, it is kind of in the GM's court always to provide that level of, of narrative reinforcement in the sense of saying, in the world of the game, this seems like a suicidal act. Are you sure? And there's no rule system that can overcome all of those, because that's the great thing about role-playing, is players can do all manner of things or think of doing all manner of things. And the GM's job is to say, this will be suicidal or this will be bootless as opposed to, yeah, that sounds like fun. Because of course, if you're playing a game that is based on the classic Michael Curtiz adventures of Robin Hood, where Robin Hood picks up a deer and fights off every guard in the palace with it. And in theory could have stabbed Claude Rains just right there and ended the movie in the first act. There is an argument that says, why didn't Robin Hood just stab Claude Rains in the first act? And the answer is because they wanted more movie to happen. But you would have to have then some positive mechanic where Robin can't, you know, um, uh, openly strike down a crowned king or something for whatever other reason. Right. Right. And the challenge system in Gumshi One to One, as seen in Cthulhu Confidential, now available for pre-order, is the system has these uh, challenges that you make with your uh, general abilities and it the challenges typically sort of pre-code in three different possible results depending on whether you get a setback a hold which is sort of a a, a neutral result or a, you know uh, or sometimes a thing that moves you forward but without an additional benefit and an advance and so the advance within those three choices if you're doing a, a gumshoe one-to-one scenario set in the era of Robin Hood, the challenge can be set up so that not even the advance allows you to kill Claude Rains. And that then gives a measure of control to prevent the um, story from morphing into something other than what it is intended to be. But the character who wants to just wreak havoc and make weird choices is not going to be served well by that structure. They're going to want a more sandboxy uh, kind of narrative that allows them to stab Claude Rains whenever they want to, and then the story goes in whatever direction it goes after that. Because Gumshoe One to One is trying to create a structure that feels a lot like a mystery novel, it is more justified in that context to have those sort of guardrails that keep you moving toward the sort of conclusion that you would expect given the setup. Are there other uh, approaches that you would uh, can envision being hard-coded into other rule sets that would make that really moment uh, more of a, a guardrail for keeping the story the way that the, the group as a whole wants it, as opposed to the, the errant uh, subversive player? Um, another thing that you can do, in addition to providing a, uh, a strong incentive to do the thing that the game is about is distract players from doing pointless things in some settings by giving them a different kind of reward to pursue. So if you're in a tavern and rather than start a meaningless tavern fight that gets the town watch called or wastes everyone's uh, healing spells, what you can provide is other sorts of reward mechanisms. And that can be if you are, you know, have a robust, uh, relationship or contacts rule set so that you're like, oh, I, I see that the guy who makes the armor in town is drinking at the tavern. I'm going to go buy him a beer and that's going to get me, you know, two silvers off my, my armor repairs going on because now we're buddies. And so the ability to do something other than stab, if, if you've got our, our standard rule set and 45 pages of it, and I desperately understate our combat, and four pages are everything else. Of course, everyone goes into every situation saying, well, what can I stab here? So the job of the rules to some extent is to provide rewards or at least fun for doing something other than stabbing, because otherwise you're just back on the playground saying, uh, you know, playing, um, uh, well, I'll play the bartender and you play the guy and we'll talk. And it's like, well, if you're not really into improv, this is not going to be as fun as 
throwing down with dice. But if you provide a, a rules mechanic or a nugget of, of narrative reward for doing something non-stabby, again, that fills your, your uh, universe up. And if that player who walks into the king, when the king's like there to give him the assignment, whether he's Claude Rains or not, says, Oh, if I use these social manipulation mechanics or these etiquette mechanics or these, uh, influence mechanics, maybe I can just make that jerk the anti-paladin look like a dummy and the king hates him and I get bonuses from that or I've done something else that's still active in the courtroom instead of just standing there listening to the GM NPC at me. Because a lot of this is driven not necessarily by malice, but just by boredom in the sense that, well, we're having a scene, nothing is happening, and I know nothing is happening because none of the rules account for what's happening in here. So this must not, this must be neutral space that I must then fill with game action. Right. Another thing that you sometimes want to use a really mechanism for, whether it's uh, encoded in the rules, the way that it is in challenges in one-to-one or done by the GM on the fly during a more conventional multiplayer game is the agreed upon tone of your campaign. And that can, uh, people can kind of slip depending on how punchy they are and how long the campaign has been going for. So that if you've all sort of mutually agreed that you are doing sort of a gritty, uh, dust-style uh, Ninth Black Agents uh, game where it's uh, sort of all look hooray and betrayals and the, uh, you know, if there's a, a gunshot, there's a single gunshot and somebody falls over and, and that's it. And that all of a sudden, if the players or one player is kind of punchy one night, and there's, oh, I just jump up with my machine gun and mow them, mow them all down. Well, you then have the question of do, are we all agreed that we've just suddenly upshifted the campaign into John Woo mode and we're setting aside the luck hooray mode? Or are we going to maybe do something more dustish? And so that's where you, uh, I think would stop the action and go, uh, is this a decision we're all making or, you know, are we just tired tonight? And that can be another possible rules mechanic is that I mean, actually t- two just occurred to me. One is a simple before every action, you can make a tactics roll. And it's like your tactics roll might give you a plus two. If you're like, Oh, look at that. There's a, a tapestry that I could climb up and then I could rain down arrows on people. Or the tactics roll might be, Oh, this room is really full of yeoman warders. I will be spit it on a spontan if I try anything. So I won't do any of that. And that, you know, is still a thing you're doing in the game, but it can tell you in game, uh, you, you know, as a trained detective or as a trained assassin, you know, that killing the king here will fill you with arrows and, and generally not help. So that is, is one possibility. The other possibility is you could actually formalize the question of do players agree? And if you, um, uh, are trying to break a convention, it may be a system whereby a player has to, donate a, a Benny or donate a skill point or something like that to buy into that action. And if you can't get the players to agree that that's what you're going to do, you can't do it because mechanically in the game, you know that killing the king without the backup of your mates is a great way to die. Right. And uh, speaking of dying, I think that the uh, time allotted for this segment has just uh, expired and gone on to join the choir invisible. So we're going to experience a lovely commercial and then be right back with our next segment. Kids, want to plunge headlong into Lovecraftian mystery but lack a gaming group? Want to introduce a friend or loved one to the role-playing hobby? Gumshoe One-to-One has come to your rescue. Find this new system by some guy named Robin D. Laws. In the first Gumshoe One-to-One book, Cthulhu Confidential, combine the darkness of 30s hard-boiled detective fiction with the cosmic horror of Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos. Complete with three dauntless investigators, each ready to play in seconds. Scholarly veteran Langston Wright by Chris Spivey. Chris Sating journalist Vivian Sinclair by Ruth Tillman. And Robin's hard-boiled private eye, Dex Raymond. Presenting three terrifying settings. Wartime Washington, D.C., a sleeping Goliath soon to awake. 1935 New York City, that roaring town and Egypt inside out. 1937 Los Angeles, its streets dark with something more than night. Includes three full-length thrilling scenarios. Capital Color, a mystery of meteoric impact. Fatal frequencies illumined by a light that cannot be seen. The Fathomless Sleep, a spiral into memory unspeakable. Also with... 
Tips and tricks for managing the doubled intensity of one-to-one play. Full support for creating your own one-to-one adventures. Guidance for online play. Being alone and terrified has never been so much fun. This ain't no party. This ain't no disco. This is the politics hunt. And it's a sooner-than-expected politics hunt because a shadowy figure has moved a beloved Patreon backer, Jeremy Forbing, to pose the following question. And uh, the reason I say that this is unexpected is that uh, in the Trump era, even more so than the Rob Ford era, our 10-day lead time is kind of an issue. Because even when we were talking about Rob Ford, there was like, well, is something else weird going to drop in the 10 days between recording and the release of the episode? Well, with Trump, we know definitely... <laughs> Definitely something weird is going to happen because 14,000 news cycles will have passed. So to orient yourselves, dear readers, uh, we are recording this on a Tuesday morning of the weekend after the executive order on immigration or refugees or whatever that was. And uh, we're waiting uh, tonight. The Supreme Court nominee will be named. I think it might be Bain. Do you think it's going to be Bain? I think we're, they're waiting on Bain until after they get a less controversial nominee through. Right. That, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. That's the smart way to play it. Right. And the escaped Bobcat is still at large in yes. Washington, D.C. Yes. Which actually, I mean, if I were Betsy DeVos, I would be doing nothing but bringing up the escaped Bobcat in my confirmation hearings. <laughs> be like, oh, <laughs> someone didn't think that they should have guns in the schools to protect against grizzly bears. Well, now now there's a bobcat on the loose. Now who do you turn to? You want me on that wall? <laughs> yes, that would. I'm sure that would help. Uh, so with, with that caveat, uh, it looks like there's been a bit of a gamification of our system. So Patreon backer Jeremy Forbing asks, based on someone named Sheila Ralston, and he quotes, posting on Facebook that she thinks a Patreon backer should ask you to discuss this question, I wanted to, to submit this for the politics hunt. Will a Trump presidency destroy one or both of the two major American political parties? This Sheila Ralston person seemed to think that Ken, I don't know how she would know this, believes it will destroy the Republicans. But since I assume she is just another humble listener like myself, I don't know if this is true. So, uh, Ken, will Trump destroy the Republicans? Well, I think that that is certainly the way to bet. And I think that it is the way to bet whether or not Trump's presidency ends in disgrace and disaster, as I think is still probably the smart money, or if it, against all odds, turns out to be a two-term presidency, no more or less successful than any of the other two-term presidencies that we have, or heaven forfend, it turns out to actually, you know, make America great again, which is super unlikely. But either way, even if that happens, the Republican Party will be remade in the image of Trump and the Goldwater element of it that made the Republican Party in my lifetime what it is will be at the very least marginalized and almost certainly uh, and possibly even expunged in the same way that the sort of Rockefeller uh, breed of Republicanism went underground until uh, emerging to an extent in the senior President Bush's era. So, I think that, you know, obviously you, you can sort of game theory it out and map it out. If you have a situation where Trump is impeached for whatever sort of awfulness, then I think you are pretty close to having what happened in Watergate, where the Democratic Party comes back and roars all up and down the, the line and throws Republicans out of the position of overwhelming power that they have now in the states and in the legislature, because that seems to be a sort of generalized response to a, um, uh, a, a disgrace and a, uh, and a, and a successful impeachment. It's always possible that Trump will be impeached for something that has got America on his side, like Clinton was. It's not impossible. The Democrats will overplay their hand, but I think we would move that into the sort of uh, continues his term out thing. If right. there's a genuine disaster, uh, the Republican party recovered from Nixon to one or another extent in 1980. And then it took another dozen years to get the the house. But after the civil war, so if you're talking about a really civilizational level disaster to the country, then the democratic party was in the wilderness for 20 years. And it was only a uh, very, very, um, uh, late and entirely due to sectional interest that they got the house or the Senate back at all. And really they were marginalized until the Republican party splintered itself in the, uh, Roosevelt era in, uh, in 1912. So, 
This is, of course, where I am leading in my second branch of the, of the line where Trump is at least somewhat successful and he winds up splintering the Republican party in the same way that Roosevelt did, where Trumpism goes in one direction, the Goldwater wing, to use the term loosely, goes in the other direction. And neither of them can agree on who gets to run the country and the Democrats run up the middle the way that Wilson did in 1912. And you wind up breaking the Republican Party apart on that rock because Trumpism and Goldwaterism, while they may have some things in common, obviously have vastly different attitudes toward um, uh, free trade being a classic example and uh, to one or another degree a free movement of people, which seems to be a, a sticking point. For Trumpism at the moment, there's other various interpretations of Republican orthodoxy that are going to get shifted ever more directly as we have a big government state activist Republican, which we haven't really had since Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, even Nixon was a was a liberal Republican, uh, less a government activist one. I guess he's sort of the the link in the chain from Teddy to Trump would be would be Nixon. But again, those are not the. Uh, the Republican Party, what it's been running on, and they're certainly not what the Goldwater core of it believes. So I, I think you're you're looking for a crack up one way or the other. Now, the interesting question, of course, given the incredible lambasting that the Democratic Party took in the last eight years, does the Democratic Party wind up sort of reunifying around its Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, uh, woke progressive wing? And the, and we shake out with a political system that for the first time in history looks more like Europe because we suddenly have a nationalist, culturally conservative party versus a progressive social democrat party, which is not the way that America has shaken out ever and is turning America's politics into European politics. Is that, is that what we want? Is Europe so darn well set up that we want to do that here? But either way, the Republican Party winds up deformed at least and splintered at greatest by the just the pressures of having won. And that's why, you know, for a long time I was saying that uh, regardless of whether or not you agreed that Hillary would be bad for the Republic, it was unquestionable that Trump would be bad for the Republicans. And I think that we're just sort of seeing that continue to play out. And as someone on Twitter pointed out, it's only January. <laughs> Yes, uh, that's the, the 14,000 news cycles a day uh, right. thing going on. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm wondering what my role in, in Trump-oriented politics sets is going to be going forward, and I, I sort of feel like I should adopt uh, the counterpoint to the Rob Ford things, where I'm just, uh, I've, I've heard of Trump only through you, and I'm, I'm mildly <laughs> bemused right. by, by antics. Uh, but of course, I am even less optimistic about uh, <laughs> what is going on than uh, than you are. I'm certainly uh, would count myself in the uh, alarmed uh, column, and it certainly seems to me that Trump destroying the Republican Party is like that's the best case scenario, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, um, and so that leaves us with uh, definitions of destroyed. So, what do you think the odds are that they're going to be destroyed in the manner of the Whig Party, in that they don't really exist anymore as opposed to uh, destroyed like the uh, Democrats after McGovern. Well, I mean, the, um, uh, the thing is that because Trump won, he was able to sort of climb into the, into the shell like a hermit crab and take it over. So it's still going to say Republican party on the letterhead, the Whig party, they had to, you know, break up and, and, and not have offices anymore, but and because they were replaced by an entirely different ideological movement from outside that party structure. What Trump has done is he's, come into that party structure and between your go along to get along types like Rince and Paul Ryan and your true believers who are like, yeah, I believed in about half of what the Republicans thought, but also this other exciting new half, you are seeing what I think is the sort of sea change that you saw in the Republican party when it turned into a free trade party from a high tariff party in the 1950s. And then again, when Goldwater completed that sort of recreation of it in 64. It was still the Republican Party. It was still said Republican Party on the headline, but it was very different, or at least half different, from McKinley's Republican Party. Right. And in this instance, a party Ken Height can't vote for. In some instances. I mean, I'll be able to vote for it locally because my other option, for example, is Bobby Rush, which um, we're not going to be running a white nationalist in Hyde Park for any number of excellent reasons. But, you know, there are, for example, any number of Republicans, on, even on the national stage, who I would vote for in a heartbeat. But whether or not they can get nominated, 
given the recreation of that party structure is going to be a different question. And many in the United States, people stay in parties for a great long time before sort of sitting up on their hind legs and saying, well, that's it. And being an independent is to my way of thinking sort of, you know, splitting the difference and saying you're not for anything. So I will probably wind up voting locally for Republicans and then nationally, depending on the candidate, but that a candidate may wind up having to make some fairly distasteful compromises in the same way that every Democrat up until Hubert Humphrey had to make compromises with the pro-lynching wing of the Democratic Party. Now, I don't think we're going to have a pro-lynching wing, but we're going to have a anti-free trade wing, which is probably killing, you know, more people on a global basis than uh, any other wing might be doing. So I wouldn't be for that. Right. So there are starting to be a glimmers of indication that the traditional owners of the Republican Party, the people who run uh, really big businesses, are uh, beginning to uh, yank the chains of their Congress people. So let's envision an alternate universe. I know uh, alternate universes are uh, usually in another segment. In this alternate universe, there's one difference uh, between uh, our universe and uh, the one that we're positing, and that is that um, you are uh, Senator Kenneth Height from the uh, proud state of Oklahoma, uh, because, of course, there's not going to be a Senator Ken Height from uh, Illinois anytime soon. Not not without building my banking fortune first, which was the last way we got a good Republican senator. Right. And so uh, you are uh, in the Senate and you are among the, uh, I guess we can't say true blue, the, the uh, true red actual Goldwater uh, conservative faction, and you have gamed it out just as you have here, and you see Trump as a threat to uh, to your party as, as standing for the things that you want it to stand for. Uh, when do you make your move, and what move do you make? Well, I think that you can look at someone like Ben Sasse in uh, Nebraska for an example of what you're doing. You oppose him on principle. You vote for nominees who are merely conventional Republican nominees, because obviously the press is sending up the panic button about everything, which is part of why Trump may yet pull this out, because as long as your opposition is worse at the job than you are, it almost doesn't matter how bad you are at right. it. Trump has to get really bad yeah. before people of uh, your way of thinking can get away from the your traditional distaste from the style of discourse that the left engages in to make common cause with them. Right. And even now, you're, you're looking at, um, uh, I think there was something like a dozen Republican senators who condemned the executive order on immigration that just came out on, on the refugee stay. So that's right. a dozen more Republicans uh, than ever there were Democrats condemning Obama's orders on immigration. So there you go. And again, we have to, it's hard to remember. It's like day 10. <laughs> so <laughs> traditionally you don't get that many Republicans speaking out against a major initiative of their president on day 10. No, there's normally something of a, of a nap period. So when does uh, Senator Haidt uh, switch from talking about your critique to acting on your critique and what action do you take? Well, I mean, first of all, Trump has to start proposing legislation before senators can act on any of it, or um, uh, senators have to start proposing legislation of their own to change the uh, immigration system or do whatever else it is that they see Trump as doing badly. And that is going to come down to the nitty gritty of legislation. Is this particular fix better than the current morass that we have? Does it institutionalize other problems down the road? Half the problems, and I'm being generous, uh, I'm minimalizing the amount. Half the problems we have are from people voting in solutions to problems that then created eight more problems easily foreseeable around the curve. Senator Height, like all Goldwaterians, has to look at the fact of government action as always deforming a situation that exists. And it you have to wait for the situation to get pretty ugly before you want to deform it further. Right. And uh, of our uh, various scenarios for uh, Trump, I think uh, popular rogue is uh, already seems kind of off the table because he's already not popular. Well, he's he's still about as popular as he was when he you know won the election. And the question is, how much do you need those extra twenty well, points? Well, actually, he's he's dropped considerably since then, and he's sort of peeled off. The people who sort of went from Hillary to him at the last minute because they they had whatever decision making process flipped them have un unflipped. And so he's back to his Rob Ford level, super fervent base. And, uh, but it's hard to imagine unless he changes who he is, I, I don't see how he gets himself back there while remaining a rogue. 
Yeah. So we're left with either he becomes a, uh, he does experience that sort of transformation, which as a writer of fiction seems implausible. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, people have, fictional characters have epiphanies all the time. And implausible are things have happened just this year. Yes, he might be leaning out a window uh, before we know it, asking if it, there's still time to get uh, a, a Christmas goose for uh, That's right. Tiny Tim. The ghost of Calvin Coolidge appears to him. It doesn't say anything. He just looks at him. Right. <laughs> Uh, so I, I guess, uh, is there anything else that we want to, uh, explore other than the location of the Bobcat before we, uh, I guess Senator, Senator Height might have to become a new uh, character on the show and we'll have to pop in and check in occasionally from that, uh, just ever so slightly different dimension and see, uh, what, uh, uh, perhaps a, what would Senator Height segment could, uh, could unfurl from this. Well, we'll, we'll see how the, we'll see how the backers respond to my sudden irrigation of power. Right. And so, uh, it's Senator, uh, Height, did you condemn the, uh, immigration executive order? Uh, absolutely condemned the applying of it to green card holders and legal permanent residents. That is the kind, I mean, first of all, even when Trump does something right, he does it wrong, which is part of why I'm worried about the party going under. But also, that is just straight up nonsense to, to do that. It, it's, it's wrong and stupid, which is the bifecta as far as I'm concerned. Right. Well, it's, it's smart if your objective is to tell any immigrant anywhere coming to America that a green card means nothing. Yeah. And you can wind up in cuffs like a snap of a finger. And the people who specified that, I think that was absolutely their intent. But, but the, but the fact of not even, you know, getting everyone to agree on, on the intent is right. symptomatic of the, of the broader. Well, if they asked everyone else to agree, they wouldn't have been able they to. They wouldn't do have it. done that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> As it transpires. Yeah. I think that was malice rather than incompetence. But, okay. Uh, Fair enough. <laughs> we can't rule either one out yet. But, but I'm glad, Senator Height, that you're condemning it nonetheless. Yes. And uh, Senator Height, are there any uh, current nominees for cabinet uh, posts that you're going to vote no on? I don't think so right off the top of my head. By and large, I go with the standard uh, that a president should have around them the person the president picks on the sort of you make your bed, you lie in it. I'm not you know, crazy happy with Flynn at National Security Advisor, but I'm fairly sure that the Senate doesn't get to vote on National Security Advisor unless they change that. So good luck. Right. And so uh, uh, finally, last time we uh, mentioned uh, Stephen Bannon by name, you were uh, unsympathetic, but somewhat dismissive of his influence. Uh, are you still on that uh, position, Senator Height? I remain unsympathetic, certainly. And again, and, but do um, we dismiss his power? Having him Added to the National Security Council is unwise, to say the least. Right. So, uh, I guess we're uh, where we start. Once I'm a senator, I have to start answering in mealy-mouthed uh, tergiversation. That's part of that's part of my senator job. But we're counting on you, uh, Senator, to be a a rare leader, a forthright in, leader in the Senate. Yeah. All right. Well, the one who has to lead the charge. Look when, to the skies on the third day. Yeah. Because when <laughs> the scenario starts to go from what you think is going to happen to what I think is going to happen, at least in the alternate reality, I'm depending on. Senator Height to step up. To step up. All right. Well, we always welcome communications from our Canadian constituents. Uh, and from alternate dimensions. Right, especially those. Yes. And on that note, uh, let's move to the alternate dimension that is our upcoming segment. What happens when demons lodge in your memories? Well, there are seven different sorts of demons, each of which has a different mnemonic effect. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. 
mythologically related. But related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers exactly like... Lewis R. Evans. Sam Weiskreider. Stuart Robertson. Aaron Sapp. And Jeremiah Genest. As the flashbulb goes off in your face and your hand is pressed into the fingerprint ink pad, you realize that once more you've been thrust into the crime blotter. Dun dun dun. Dun dun dun. The cigarette smoke spirals against the black and white cinematography, and we are thrown into 1930s Los Angeles. The chatter of typewriter keys and the chatter of Tommy guns welcome us to the gangland of 30s LA because Robin, in a exciting to be reversal of our roles, you have been digging around in actual history, doing actual research, and have come up with, as always happens, nuggets of goodness that you are going to share with us here on the podcast in the Crime Blotter about 30s gangs. What, right. What's fun and, about that? And them? this research was done for Cthulhu Confidential, uh, aforementioned in this episode, and still available for pre-order. Uh, you get the uh, preview PDF right away and the uh, book when it becomes a book. And uh, we've had, uh, thankfully, we've gotten some input from uh, people and we uh, managed to include some little improvements here and there uh, since we've had the PDF out to pre-orders. So that has been convenient. But uh, one of the cool things about working on this project has been exploring the really fascinating uh, gang world, particularly of 1937, which is the year that I chose uh, mostly for this reason of this is when there's a seismic shift that's occurring in the LA gang scene so that you've got the pre-existing gang structure, which is quite different than what we think of today uh, as organized crime. And then classic organized crime has just begun to sort of come in at the edges. So in 37, there's this guy named Guy McAfee, who is basically the head of the mob. And as the name suggests, he's an Anglo and he's a former vice cop turned head of gangland because that's how the traditional establishment works in L.A., which is that the owners of major concerns in L.A., uh, the the white shoe Anglo uh, rich guys and the police and the organized crime gangs are different wings of the same organization. And so you have an ex-cop as your head of of the gang, and he's uh, sort of an an avuncular uh, figure. His nicknames include uh, Slats. String Bean, and my favorite, The Whistler. Why do you think he's called The Whistler? Oh, I sure hope it's because he paints pictures of his mother. No, it's because when he was a uh, uh, still a cop, he would uh, whistle down the phone line to alert criminal cronies of a raid about to happen. There you go. So that was his signal. And he was a right-hand man to an even more old-timey gang boss named Charlie Crawford, whose career went all the way back to uh, the gold rush in the Klondike. And then he came down to L.A. and established himself. So he's, uh, you know, your late 19th century uh, sort of fat cat with a big cigar. Imagine him. And he was shot by a, a prosecutor who kind of went off the rails. And then uh, McAfee <laughs> like took you over. Do. Yeah. And uh, there was a big circus-like trial surrounding uh, the end of Charlie Crawford. But until a district attorney's uh, bullet uh, brought him down, he managed to hold off. East Coast organized crime, so that when Al Capone came to town uh, in the 20s, famously Crawford's uh, hand-picked police goon squad went and picked him up and escorted him quite firmly uh, across the uh, California border. So they managed to, to maintain a, uh, a pretty much a lock on criminal power in Los Angeles. Uh, there was a, a representative of uh, the traditional... Sicilian mob. He was from uh, Corleone in Sicily. That's a familiar town mm-hmm. name to us. But he's just sort of off in the fringes picking up scraps within the L.A. Uh, Italian community. He doesn't wield a lot of uh, power. And he remains second fiddle to uh, the guy who becomes the eventual uh, crime boss 
uh, until he dies in like the 50s. Uh, Jack Dragna, right? J- Jack Dragna. And so, Ken, I bet you know the, the rest of the story. So uh, who are we going to start talking about now in terms of the guys coming in? To take over. Well, I assume we're going to talk about our buddy Mickey Cohen, or perhaps our other buddy Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. Oh, don't call him Bugsy. Don't call, don't him, call Bugsy. him Bugsy. Ken, not don't to call his him face. Bugsy. Well, he I'm doesn't not. like that. I'm calling so, yes. him Bugsy to his posterity, to his historical rep. Yes. Well, p- people called him Bugsy then, but not to his face. Not to his face. So uh, they're coming in. Uh, they're representatives of the uh, Genovese crime family from the East Coast in New York. At that time, we're talking about Frank Costello. Uh, who we could do a whole segment on at some time, and Meyer Lansky, who we could do six whole segments on, I'm sure. And at this point, Mickey Cohen, uh, these are Jewish-American uh, gangsters, and uh, uh, Mickey Cohen is just a 24-year-old thug at this point. He's uh, just uh, Siegel's torpedo, and tor- uh, Siegel, who's like only 31, is the handsome, matinee, idle-looking uh, guy who's got all the attention on him, uh, you know, Warren Beatty as Bugsy Siegel was not bad casting at all. It was not a stretch. Um, and he even did, you know, a screen test. He was thinking of getting into acting at, at one point. And so they're the guys coming in trying to help the uh, Genovese's do what the Capone mob could not. And Cohen, who at this point is, is not even literate, is the one who survives the big shakeout when uh, the uh, passing of the torch comes from the sort of Anglo white shoe mob to uh, more traditional organized crime. And he remains sort of the king of uh, organized crime in Los Angeles until around the 60s. And he's sort of, uh, you know, almost sort of, uh, if Rob Ford were a mob boss, it would be Mickey Cohen. He becomes a (laughs) a flamboyant character who's always giving interviews to the press and is... uh, Dayton Starlets. uh, Yeah, lovable as mobsters go. But of course, is also a a really uh, scary mob dude. But at this point, the mayor of uh, of the city, uh, Frank L. Shaw, famously corrupt, uh, is in with the McAfee gang, and uh, he uh, remains in power until 38. There's a big scandal. A, a private investigator and former uh, Venice, uh, California police chief is in his car when it gets blown up, and uh, he survives, and there's a big scandal. About what a terrible job they did blowing up his car? Yes. <laughs> Uh, yep, blowing up people in their cars is is not a sure thing. It turns out. No, there's a there's a machine gun. Jack McGurn was standing in a phone booth when three people emptied Tommy guns into it, and he survived that. So people are terrible at killing people in mob times. It's a miracle they ever got anyone killed. Yes, that, that suggests that uh, an old fashioned hit point system where you have seventy eight hit points and uh, each machine gun bullet does one to three <laughs> does one d three. There you go. Might actually, be a realistic Gygaxian realism on the streets of L.A. There you go. And so, of course, if you're painting this gang world, you can't uh, not look at the cops as well. So the LAPD police chief at this point is. Uh, James Edgar Davis, also known as James Two-Gun Davis. And uh, he's a big, burly, sadistic guy who loves nothing more than uh, busting union organizer heads. And uh, all of these guys were, uh, you know, virulently uh, anti-labor. And so basically that's your criminal ecosystem that you have in place to uh, to play with. And if you read Chandler, uh, you can go and see all the different analogs of all of these uh, different figures because they are in hard-boiled mystery novels and Chandler, Raymond Chandler fictionalized them. He can kill them off, but actual history didn't uh, kill them off. And even Guy McAfee, when he got pushed out of LA, he just went to uh, Vegas. And it's Bugsy Siegel who gets all the credit today for being the mob figure who founded uh, Vegas notoriously, uh, due to cost overruns, took a rifle bullet in the eye. Yep. That was the end of him. Mm-hmm. But McAfee set up his own casino. And he's the, if you go to Vegas and you say, hey, we're, we're going to the Vegas Strip. Well, you're using a term that uh, Guy McAfee invented because he uh, just uh, took the term for the Sunset Strip in uh, Los Angeles and applied it to, to Vegas. Now, uh, readers of James Elroy's fiction know that the other great thing about the cop half of LA is that in addition to the LAPD, you also have the Los Angeles County sheriffs because there's so many little jurisdictions around in LA and so much unincorporated territory in that enormous County. So the sheriff's department becomes just as important in many ways to the mob as the LAPD does. Now, do you know anything about uh, legendary sheriff uh, Eugene Biscalas? Is he a good guy? Is he a, a good guy out of his depth or is he 
uh, wired up. And, History and, is not as certain as James Elroy on this uh, topic. I, I felt that it might not be. Right. So Elroy, of course, uh, has no problem uh, producing actual historical figures who uh, died even fairly recently and still have uh, families. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes he will lightly fictionalize them, as with the... Uh, a Disney character mm-hmm. in uh, in the Blue Dahlia, but <laughs> if they have, uh, the if they have families and multi billion dollar corporations, <laughs> yes. So uh, Eugene Biscales is uh, when you see a photo of him, he seems like a just a regular uh, kind of nice guy, homey looking bureaucrat with uh, horn broom glasses, and he n- never gets caught for anything. The closest he comes to being accused of corruption is that he has this habit of giving out deputy. Uh, sheriff's badges to just about any pal of his and you know here's a badge and a gun (laughs) go out and continue being a car dealer and uh he was just like thousands of them and uh that allows them to not only pack heat but to score low interest loans which turns out to be a benefit of being a deputy uh, sheriff in la county sure it does Um, now it is interesting that once the corruption scandal in 1938 brings an actual honest mayor into office in L.A. that uh, organized crime shuts down within the L.A. city limits. And if you know your L.A. geography, that's just, you know, and then the next giant contiguous area surrounding it and all, all sides except for the ocean is L.A. County. And L.A. County remains a mob uh, free zone to do whatever they want. So, I don't know. I I suspect that uh, James Elroy, who, of course, notoriously, you know, a generation later, uh, sniffed around the L.A. underworld in more than one way, mm-hmm. uh, may have caught some things that are not on the historical record. But uh, we're stuck with uh, what history tells us. And uh, if the scale was corrupt, he never got caught. And now the uh, thing that obviously is, is close to your love would be mobster and film producer Johnny Roselli, handsome Johnny who came out from Chicago because they were short of Italians in LA. And so uh, Dragna needed to recruit some people he could turn into made men and, and put under the code of Omerta. So he becomes a movie producer in, in his spare time while also opening up clubs in Vegas later on in the forties and helping the CIA kill Castro and doing lots of other patriotic uh, public spirited sorts of behaviors. Yes. The, the cool stuff he does, he does after the thirties. Yeah. So. Although he's in LA in the thirties running around, so you can still right. meet him. Yeah. So you could add him to uh, a Cthulhu confidential thing, but he, he is yet to, uh, if we ever do, uh, you know, a fifties Vegas Howard Hughes, uh, one-to-one thing, obviously uh, he would have to start featuring in that, uh, the, the world that Elroy covers in his, uh, his later, quadrilogy i guess it is mm-hmm. so i think we've uh, we've covered the major figures of the la mob in 1937 and can move on through this commercial to our final segment The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's puppet land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker-killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys, sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. The gorgeous new hardback edition ships to a store shelf near you in December. Featuring full-color paintings by Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales by contributors such as... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready. Ready for you! Speaking of out-of-place predatory cats, it's time to uh, wave at the uh, alien big cat on the horizon and also to the gray alien who's uh, hanging out with him. I think they're having kombucha today. Uh, (laughs) Only aliens would have that. Yes, aliens would definitely have kombucha. Uh, They might be, that's maybe what they're injecting us with. Uh, Because we're in the Elliptony Hut and uh, Patreon backer and illustrator extraordinaire uh, Jan Poshbashil has a question for us. Uh, Jan of course, worked on Hill Folk and uh, is the art director of 
uh, Six Ages, the mobile game that I wrote uh, four novels worth of material for, and hopefully we'll soon be able to tell you about. That'd be fun. But but Jan has a question that you can tell us about, Ken, and that is to explain the relationship between rhesus blood factor and Atlantean survivors. Okay. <laughs> this comes from two different places, and it's one of those rare cases where someone actually did some creative thinking, and that almost never happens in Elliptony. That's almost always left up to gifted Usually artists. It's crib, the last guy. Exactly. Stuff. But Edgar Casey, the sleeping seer who would uh, take long naps and wake up and babble electronically, sort of a model, I think, for all of us, said that the survivors of Atlantis, after Atlantis sank, uh, washed up in uh, Spain and specifically amongst uh, the Basque people of Spain. That That's one of the things that he dreamed is that the Basques were from Atlantis. Now, the Basques are weird and strange and interesting and unique and fun in so many other ways, from killing Roland all the way down to uh, being a thorn in Franco's side. They've been nothing but fun for everyone else around them. And this sort, of, this sort of sticklerness causes people to say things like, you're from Atlantis. But another thing that might cause them to say that is the fact that they have a much larger percentage of RH negative blood than most other people. Minority of, of blood types are uh, RH negative. I think it's like 15% of everybody. And in most populations, it's even under that. So the RH negative blood, if it shows up in a big group in a population, that separates you out. And not least because RH negative mothers with RH positive babies are at risk. So there's problems. But the larger point being that because the Basques have this big chunk of RH negative blood, people are saying, gosh, what could explain that weird thing? And some elliptonists said, oh, I'll tell you what explains them. <laughs> Edgar Casey <laughs> said they come from Atlantis. Let me go to the immediate Atlantis. rational explanation that anyone right. would jump to, which is That they Atlantis. come from Atlantis. And so that is the sort of the, 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 uh, one hesitates to say basis, but it's the origin of the argument. We know that Basques have a much higher percentage of RH negative blood. It's like 60% as opposed to the 15% global average. And with a 60% RH negative, that implies that they've got, first of all, a very, very tightly uh, end endogamous uh, marriage group that they, that they marry within, but also that they are separate from the people in Spain and France and everywhere else around them. And that then makes you say Atlantis because they live up there in that neck of, of the Bay of Biscay. And of course, the Basques discovered America and just didn't tell anyone about it because it was full of great fishing grounds. And why would you tell other people where there were great right. fishing grounds? Think well, for two and minutes. they predicted it would otherwise lead to a bad end. Well, not for the Basques, but certainly it would make the fish more yeah, expensive. Yeah, other people went there, there'd be trouble. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can't be going there. There's trouble. Yeah. <laughs> if you go there, you will be trouble. You I will think, be trouble for us. Probably. Yes. You and your RH positive blood. Get him. Um, so you mentioned that Edgar Casey. Uh, was one of the threads that leads us there. What is the other one? Well, the other one is just the the noticing that the Basques have this large chunk of RH negative blood. And I think it's because the mystical qualities of blood that have been flowing into our elliptonic mainstream from Japan, where blood type is the astrology. They, they don't say, what's your sign? They say, what's your blood type? And so you have to know your blood type. And so that means people are paying right. attention to Japanese. As opposed to contemporary uh, Western culture where we say, what's your food allergy? What's your food allergy? Right. That's like, oh, well, you're, you're gluten allergic. You're compatible with me because I'm peanut allergic. Yeah. And so the, um, the awareness within elliptonic circles of blood type woo woo has probably led them to notice. And again, I cannot undersell how unusual it is that people bother to notice things that the Basques <laughs> have this unique concentration of RH negative blood and therefore must be special. When you ask why are the Basques special, Edgar Casey says, because of Atlantis. Now, Edgar Casey also said that the Mayans were the people who survived Atlantis. And as far as I know, they don't have any different RH negative blood from anybody else. So at the very least, there's East Atlanteans who become Basques and West Atlanteans who do not. But that's, uh, or maybe Quetzalcoatl changed their blood. Maybe uh, that's what that, happened. I wouldn't put it past him. No, it's, it's, exactly it's his way. the sort of thing that yeah. he would get Quetzalcoatl to do, or that he would just do for the hell of it. Under his stage name, Kulkukan. Right. Yeah. Now, what do the Basques have to say about this theory? Well, whatever, first of all, they probably say it in Basque, so no one knows. <laughs> <laughs> because it's, it's linguistically quite different to Basque language. 
and which is another argument in favor of their being from Atlantis. Yes. The, uh, the, the Basques have a great saying, which has nothing to do with Atlantis, but it's great fun that when God made man, he used the bones from a Basque graveyard. <laughs> <laughs> so they're, they're a primordial elder race. They are. They're, they're a primordial they're elder race. And there is a, uh, a whole other, uh, aspect among the Basques. I suspect that if you ask them, are you descendants of Atlantis? They say, oh, it's not us. And they point to the Cagotes, who are the Basque version of the gypsies. And they're the people you blame for everything, who are the weird alien foreigners who do things wrong. But when you're the Basques and you're already the weird alien foreigners who do things wrong, you have to have a special subset of people who allegedly have uh, webbed feet and uh, that's why they have to wear a red duck foot around their necks. Possibly it comes from gots, meaning lepers, or possibly cagote, meaning dogs of the goths. So they might have ghoul blood as well. But the Basques shun, as does everybody else, it's not just the Basques, but they shun the cagotes. And so the cagotes might be the Atlanteans who are within the Basques, and that's who's the pure RH negative blood. Although the cagotes' great marker is that they don't have earlobes. They have, um, their ears just connect to the, to the, to the skull. So that might be the sign of, of your Atlantean because of course, uh, deep ones wouldn't have earlobes either because their ears wouldn't be outside the, the head. They'd be flush with the body. So right. they, but you, you lose your lobe when you transform from hybrid state, right? Or you, or you never had one because you've got too much deep one, uh, DNA and you making your RH factors all negative and whatnot. Right. Uh, now one of the crazy people sites that I briefly looked at for this purpose says that the uh, RH negative does not exist in, in primates, whereas the other blood types all do. Is this a, a bit of craziness that you have uh, run across? I, I saw that same bit of nonsense, but I don't know if it is true. When has that stopped us before? When has that show? stopped us before? <laughs> but the notion of RH negative blood being weird and strange, uh, it, once you start sort of moving out into that world, Rather than Atlanteans, people say it's it's what reptoids are. We've already brought up that it could be deep ones. It might be aliens. You might be Nephilim. You might be any number of things. But since RH stands for rhesus monkey, um, we know that rhesus monkeys have RH positive because that's the blood antigen that's in rhesus monkeys. But I don't know. I assume someone has blood typed all the monkeys, but... For some reason, uh, your, your standard texts on RH factor don't immediately start listing all the primates and saying whether or not they have, uh, RH negative blood. But it's certainly the sort of thing you can say in the course of a role playing game and no one can, will call you on it. And if you have a primatologist in your group, great, make them answer your question. So, uh, other than having the idea that if you research Basque culture and decide to play a Basque character, that you can reveal later on in the midst of the, uh, series that you, in fact, are a knowing heir to Atlantis, are there other, uh, gameable ideas that we can mine out of this uh, particularly original bit of woo-woo? Um, I think one of the things that you can uh, do with it is, be, like I mentioned, all the other sort of stuff about the Basques, like their uh, secret colonies across the the Atlantic. You can tie that into your Oak Island or your um, other exciting Templar refuge type stuff. I think that the fact that the Basques killed Roland and took his horn means that you have a great quest object so you are going looking for the Horn of Roland and that that might be anywhere. It might have been the Horn of Atlantis or the Horn of Gondor or Gondor might be Atlantis. We don't know. Uh, the Gondor, I think, was settled by Atlanteans, too, because that's what the Dunedain are. Weren't they from a sunken continent? Same basic thing. So the notion that you've got the the Horn of uh, Gondor slash Atlantis slash uh, Roland as a, as a quest object always adds more fun. Um, I think you can have a notion... And this is probably more uh, fun or more applicable in your 60s or 70s type game. Uh, but in that era, when the Basque uh, terrorist group, the ETA, was setting off bombs and engaging in all manner of uh, political theater and political violence, you can tie that into that 60s, 70s counterculture year zero type remake the world and say that the ETA are attempting to esoteric style tear off the veil and reveal Atlantis to people. And by suddenly resurfacing Atlantis in our midst, they will bring about this revolution in consciousness and perception and incidentally make uh, the Basque homeland independent again. 
and that that could be the sort of magical half of that uh, terror group. And then the other question, if you're playing a modern day sort of game is, you know, did the last ETA ideologist pass on the secret is, you know, are there ETA uh, weapons caches around that have Atlantean uh, vibratory barriers around them or something like that. And you can use that as a, as a doorway back into Atlantis, certainly in a Knights black agents game, people having weird blood strikes me as the sort of thing vampires would, would be onto. So maybe RH negative blood, is um uh, like super powerful to vampires and they really love it or maybe they can't get any nutrition from it and so if you're an, a basque agent then you have a slight advantage over vampires because they can't smell you or something so you can play around with that depending on how you want the rh negative to come about right or it can uh, cause you to explode if you accidentally uh, drink an atlantean that's that's bad news right um you could also do a uh modern day magic came back game that's like a generation after Atlantis rose in 1971 and the Basques are now, you know, one of the world magical superpowers because they got Atlantis back. And that can be part of just the background of a world where all of the new age beliefs became real. And, uh, you know, now you can be a druid again and actually, you know, have your animal familiar as you're walking down the street to uh, go to the laundromat, uh, and presumably do other more interesting things than that. Yes. Um, yeah. Obviously and, uh, laundromat but, adventure, but Robin. That can but... be a different way to give you your, uh, you know, magic's back paranormal urban fantasy kind of world. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, speaking of, of magic in the world, I think our magic has uh, temporarily ebbed away. So it's time for us to go uh, get into our recharge pods. To diminish and go into the West, perhaps. Yes. But we'll come back from the West uh, next week at the uh, same general podcast drop time to join you for another episode. Same Basque time, same Basque channel. Oh, why didn't I see that one? I don't know. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Join such Atlantean survivors as... Patrick Joint. Noel Warford. Corey Welch. Ross Ireland. And Nancy Feldman. Snag Ken and Robin apparel and other erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>